Good morning, everyone. If you're just joining with us this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Ruth this Advent season. And today we come to the end, to the joyous resolution and conclusion of Ruth chapter 4. So please turn with me, if you will, to Ruth chapter 4. And there's been a question lurking under every chapter of this book. And it's a singular question. And the question is this, how will Naomi be restored? How will Naomi, a broken, embittered, and despondent woman, be made whole again? And the book of Ruth is one of those little books with a really big message. And as we've seen, it's a book that contains no miracles, no supernatural healings, no sermons, no real pomp and circumstance. Instead, it's just a rather earthy book. There's dirt beneath its fingernails. It's an ordinary book about ordinary people living in ordinary lives. There's life and death, feast and famine, road trips, barley fields, discouragement, mother and daughter-in-laws. There's infertility. There's integrity. There's romance. There's selflessness. There's selfishness. And a bunch of other things that make up the hodgepodge contained in the everyday life of faith. Yet the author is diligent to remind us that amidst the ordinary, the everyday, the run-of-the-mill type stuff that makes up the days of our lives, there's something extraordinary at work amidst the ordinary. The sovereign providences of our God at work in the hearts and in the lives of his people. For he is a God who does miraculous things, who speaks and creation springs into existence, who commands and the Red Sea's parts, the Jordan River folds and raging storms cease. Yet he's also a God who is at work in the details, who is intimately aware of the nitty-gritty of our lives, that he is a God who knows us from the hairs on our head to the hairs on our feet. That our God is also quite adept at multitasking. For he is a God who knows more and who is doing more things in us and around us than we could possibly ever number. Yet this side of glory, we view the tapestry of our existence from the backside from the messy side, from the side which we can see its bigger picture in parts. We can catch a glimpse of, of the whole. Yet the finer, the more intricate details are often clouded and shrouded by a bit of a mess. And that, brothers and sisters, is the beauty of the book of Ruth. That the tapestry of God's glorious grace is flipped right side up. And together we can behold the sovereign providential workings of our God. Well, let us now read it 
together. This is Ruth chapters 4. And may we remember that this is God's word written. And hear it now. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day, you are witnesses that this day I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz told Ruth, or took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. 
Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This far, the reading of God's word. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you show us your glory by showing us Christ? We pray these things now in your son's name. Amen. Well, we've got quite a text this morning, but I want us to take it in two headings. The simplicity amidst life's complexities and the Lord our hope. So those two points again, the simplicity amidst life's complexity and the Lord our hope. The first point, the simplicity amidst life's complexities. Well, in Ruth 3, our story takes a a bit of an unexpected and an unwanted turn. Our growing expectations are derailed by a a surprise crisis. After the monumental moment of the threshing floor, by all accounts, we should be planning a wedding, not dealing with a crisis, a crisis that comes to us straight out of left field. The whole point of chapters 2 and 3 of Ruth is that everybody and their grandmother wants Boaz to be the guy, to be the kinsman redeemer. And the thing is, he's willing. He's a worthy man. And Ruth, the Moabite, through her character and devotion to Naomi, has proved that she too is a worthy woman. Surely there's been enough drama in this story, enough pain and sorrow. No, what needs to come now is that old children's song. First comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Like, let's keep it simple. Let's just follow the Hallmark Christmas movie formula and let these two lovebirds stroll off into the sunset. That's how this story is supposed to go. Yet life tends to be messier than we would prefer. And as we situate ourselves in the context of Ruth 4, we need to recognize that here at the beginning, our story is in crisis. The prose here are dripping with angst and anxiety because the beautiful and the obvious story that God has been sovereignly and providentially weaving together is now precariously in danger of falling all apart. Things here are, are, are on a knife's edge because there's a nearer redeemer, a redeemer who has the right of first refusal, And not only is he nearer, as we will soon discover, he's a far lesser redeemer. In fact, the narrator doesn't even give this man a name other than the Hebrew phrase, Palmoni Almoni, which kind of makes him sound like a sleazy, greasy Italian mobster. But what it essentially means is that he's Mr. No-Name. He's Mr. So-and-so. He's... John Doe or Joe Schmo, he's essentially a no-good nobody. And through his actions in the coming verses, we will see why. And the thing is, it's all wrong. This is not how the story should go. It's supposed to be Ruth and Boaz, not Ruth and some no-good knucklehead. 
And brothers and sisters, at, as the various crises of our days arise from out of the murky waters of our lives, we can begin to think and to feel in similar ways. That this shouldn't be happening. My story shouldn't be going like this. I had a plan. I worked that plan. I did A. I did B. And out popped a blue giraffe. Like, what is this? I just don't understand. How could this things have gone or turned out like this? Being single wasn't in my plan. Losing a spouse or a child or a sibling, that wasn't what I had in mind for my life. Infertility, unemployment, sickness, death, wayward kids, depression, cancer, and so many other broken things. I had a plan for my life. I had a dream for my story. But I just never expected this would be part of it. That my story would work out like this. See, life is often messier than we would prefer it. Sometimes the floor falls out from beneath us and drops us into the horrors of life unexpected. And in those moments, and really moment by moment, our God wants us to trust him because he's at work. That's the simplicity amidst the complexity. And at the tail end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we need to notice the simplicity of faith amidst the complexities of life. Because while the narrative is dripping with angst and concern, the main characters aren't. Boaz and Ruth aren't spiraling. They're not running off the rails into worry or fear, but step by step they are moving forward in faith. In faith, Ruth waits. And in faith, Boaz takes action. And in his action, Boaz, he's obedient to do what the law requires. And once again, the integrity, the honesty, and the character of Boaz is on display for all to see. And almost painfully so. To the point that the narrator would have us begin to wonder, is Boaz being just a little bit too honest? Is he demonstrating just too much integrity? Is he putting the whole plan at risk? Will his integrity and his honesty be the downfall of our story? Yet Boaz meets this crisis. He meets the complexities of life with faith with integrity, and with a hopeful trust in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, when life goes sideways, when things get messy, the temptation for us all is to cut corners, to think pragmatically or expediently rather than spiritually. Because in our pride, sometimes we think we know better than God. So we do what the people did during the time of the judges. We do what's right in our own eyes. Rather than humbly, faithfully, and perhaps even sacrificially trusting God and taking him at his word, we trust ourselves. God 
doesn't necessarily call us to expedience. He doesn't call us to be pragmatic, but he does call us to be faithful, inviting us to trust and to obey him, to trust and obey his word, to submit the whole of our lives, even the nitty-gritty bits, to the word of God, even when it's messy, even when it's uncomfortable, and even when it's inconvenient. God often wants more from our lives than we are willing or wanting to give him. And the various crises of our day provide the necessary opportunities for us, his people, to trust and to obey the Lord in faith. And for Boaz to trust and to obey the Lord, he needed to take the promises that he had made to Ruth on the threshing floor and make them realities at the city gate. So another one of the complexities of life is that there always seems, there are times when we have to faithfully jump through hoops. Death, taxes, and the DMV besiege us all. There are forms and duplicates and triplicate triplicate that we have to fill out. There are boilerplates we have to sign formalities that we have to complete in order to fulfill our various duties and responsibilities. Such is life. Ordinary life has its casual moments, but there are other times when life requires a little more formality. Things have to, as we Presbyterians like to say, be done decently and in order. And what we see in verses 1 through 12, as Boaz has his, quote, day on day in courts, is that great care and attention to detail is given here about the court's proceedings, demonstrating that everything that Boaz does in respect to becoming the kinsman redeemer is being done on the up and up. And all Boaz is attempting to do is being done out in the open for all to see. As he goes from the threshing floor to the city gate, there are certain things that Boaz needs to accomplish to fulfill to Ruth what he has promised that he would do for her. He needs to track down this nearer redeemer. And as Boaz arrives at the city gate, behold, there he was. It's almost as if as Boaz gets to work, he discovers that the Lord is already there. He's already at work providing the necessary components and the details needed, including the presence of the near Redeemer and the necessary witnesses for the legal proceedings. So in verse 3, Boaz shares with Mr. No Name that Naomi intends to sell the parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech, which is a rather good tidings for this sleazy, greasy Italian. Because as he sees the opportunity He smells real estate, and cheap real estate at that, along with the added benefit that he would be doing a highly respected family duty in providing for Naomi. See, this is a win-win-win for him. So he buys the land from Naomi, taking care of her daily needs, and his reward is that Elimelech's land would become his. And because Elimelech has no heirs, it would become his land for the duration In modern parlance, he's getting the Family Redeemer of the Year Award along with paying $10,000 for a $10 million home. 
This is literally a no-brainer, which is why he leaps at the opportunity in verse 4, declaring, I will redeem it. Of course he will. It makes sense. But as soon as he does, Boaz reveals the catch. And her name is Ruth. Now, as we know, she really is a catch in more ways than one. But in the mind of Pelmoni Almoni, she's no catch at all. No, she radically transforms this win-win situation for him into a lose-lose. Not only will he have to pay for the land and for Naomi's care, any children would be Elimelech's heirs, not his. Therefore, to take on this responsibility would actually lead to the, the diminishment of his inheritance and legacy. While still socially admirable, it would be financially burdensome and would offer no return on investment in his mind. So just as quickly as he accepted, he abdicates this responsibility. See, he will only redeem that which benefits him. In contrast, Boaz is willing to redeem Naomi and Ruth at great cost and to the detriment of himself. And in verses 7 through 12, Boaz proves that he's not just talk, but he's also a little bit of walk too. No, he makes it official. He will be the kinsman redeemer, and he does all that is legally required in order to make it happen. And brothers and sisters, lest we miss it, like Ruth and Naomi, each and every one of our lives need redeeming. For our, we all fall, all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. There are broken spaces and places in each of our lives that only the blood of Jesus can make whole again. And in the extravagance of grace, our God is in the redemption business. For when we were lost in our sin, Christ died for us, that he might redeem us. For as Paul tells us in Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, by his perfect life, Jesus has satisfied all the law's legal demands so that on the cross, at the costliness of his own blood, he takes upon himself the wrath that our sins deserve. And he gives to us and, gives, and, he, and he gives to all who would believe in him his righteousness and perfection, so that in him we are now and forevermore declared righteous and are thereby justified by faith alone in Christ alone. See, friends, do you know such a Redeemer here this morning? Because that's what the gospel offers you this morning, a Redeemer that can redeem your life from the pit, a redeemer who can bring redemption's story beneath the surface of your lives down to the uttermost desolate places of your soul. You see, Jesus is our great kinsman redeemer who sacrificed himself for the sake of his bride, for the sake of his church. 
And brothers and sisters, it is because we have such a radically sacrificial redeemer that we can in joyous and joyful response live as living sacrifices, which, as Paul tells us, is our spiritual worship. Because ours is a redeemer who sacrificed himself. We can be a sacrificial people. We can be sacrificial with our time, with our energies, with our monies, with our gifts, with our pride, with our egos, with our talents, with our homes, with our relationships. And in Christ, as we stumble and fumble and at times crumble our way towards glory, we can do so with hope. And that's how our passage this morning ends, with hope. For the Lord is our hope. And he sows the seeds of that hope throughout the entirety of our lives. Because he is a God who answers prayer. Though often in unexpected and even unconventional ways. For such a short book, there's a good bit of prayer in the book of Ruth. And every prayer of blessing that's prayed, the Lord God answers. Because we have a God who takes the prayers of his people quite seriously. Even the messy ones. For as Psalm 65 reminds us, he is a God who hears prayers. In Ruth 1 verses 8 and 9, Naomi prays for Ruth and Orpah. That the Lord, Yahweh, would deal with them kindly. And provide them new husbands. And despite the many flaws in the thinking behind that prayer, that is exactly what the Lord has done for Ruth. He's provided her a husband. And in Ruth 2, verse 12, Boaz prays for Ruth that the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And little did Boaz know when he prayed that prayer that he himself was going to be the answer to his prayer. And if you notice in our passage this morning, In verses 11 and 12, there's this odd but incredibly necessary prayer that brings the court proceedings to a close. Because we're not home yet. Suspense still remains. While a redeemer and a marriage has been secured, the nursery remains empty. Remember, Ruth had been married before, and that first marriage had produced no children. And there's a lot of fascinating aspects and components to explore in this prayer, particularly the women that are mentioned in it. But for this morning, I want us to hone in on two things about this prayer. That as one commentator has said, that this is a prayer for productivity and for prominence. The first petition is that this union be productive. And that prayer is immediately answered in verse 13. Boaz marries Ruth, and emphatically we are told that Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, enabled them to conceive a child. And very soon a son is born. And as her grandson bounces up and down on her lap, Naomi's redemption is fully complete. That which has been lost has now been restored. Naomi's name means 
pleasant. And she is pleasant once again. The second petition of this prayer is that the offspring of this marriage would be prominent. Which is a prayer that is partially answered and fulfilled by the final word of the book. With a name. David. Which tells us that the great-grandmother of the great king David was a Moabite woman named Ruth. And as we knock on the front door of the New Testament, who do we find there? But Ruth. See, brothers and sisters, our God works in mysterious and unconventional ways, using unconventional and ordinary people. And he does extraordinary things, all the while using the most unlikely of people to bring about the wondrous and the gracious fulfillment of his kingdom and of his glory. See, our hope is that we have a God who has been and who will forever be faithful. But he's just not always predictable. And there is a deep wrestling there for us. For our lives don't always go according to our plans. Like Naomi, we must endure bitter and tragic providences. Yet even the bitterest of providence can turn sweet in the gracious and sovereign hand of our God. And we see that in the life of Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And though she had returned from Moab empty and declaring to all who would listen that she was Naomi no more, she was pleasant no more, but that she was Mara, that she was bitter, for the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. Yet incredibly, the narrator never refers to Naomi as Mara because he knows that's not true. He knows it's not true. For the Lord is gracious and kind to her and though unexpected, he has blessed her with all that she needs so that she can say along with the psalmist that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Recently, I was at a park with Olivia. And as she played on the playground, I struck up a conversation with an older gentleman sitting on the bench nearby. And as he introduced himself to me, he gave me a warning. He warned me that he suffered from DOMS. I'm not medical, so I had no idea what he's talking about. So I asked him, what's GOMS? He told me, I've got grumpy old man syndrome. To which I nervously laughed and ha ha ha. But as we continued to talk, he wasn't selling himself short. (laughs) He really was a grumpy old man. And as he began to recount to me the story of his days, clearly life had been hard on him. Many of his plans had been spoiled. His dreams had been dashed. Loves unrequited. Fortunes made, lost, and squandered. He was bitter and angry at everything and everyone in his life. And as I stood there listening and feeling hopeless as I, I, I tried to, to stop his embittered spiral downwards. That is until Olivia sauntered over. 
and have me swoop her up and introduce her to him. And in a mere moment, he melted right before my eyes. His reddened eyes softened. His angry voice lightened and became almost lyrical in its quality. And a giant smile burst across his gruff and bearded face. Because babies have a way of changing things. And we see that in the story of Naomi. We see that a baby has changed everything for her. She who was bitter and broken by the tragedies of life, as one commentator has, has said, is now beholding the goodness of God in the land of the living. And friends, what we are celebrating here at Christmas is the goodness of God in the land of the living. For a mere baby has truly changed the world and changed everything. Because that baby's name is Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. A baby who was born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone by thine all-sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, our lives need redemption. And in Jesus, we have such a redeemer. So, Father, would you help us to cast aside all near redeemers and to cling to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners and the Redeemer of our lives. This we pray in your Son's name. Amen.